some really high end work. So, yeah. But, uh, Have you been drinking at all? You sound a little bit drunk. Oh, I'm just driving to work and it's oh. early. So, yeah, early and dark. So, I don't. Uh, yeah. How big? So, are, how big are your boobs? Um, like a 34C. Jeez, that's about perfect. I've been told I have perfect titties, but maybe they were just trying to flatter me. So I love my titties. I love playing with my titties, twisting my titties, licking my titties. I enjoy them. Pretty fucking awesome. She enjoys her titties. (laughs) (laughs) You enjoy your titties, Robin? Well, they're there. No. (laughs) No. She enjoys hers. She's very sexual. Are you up for anything in bed? Are you doing anal? Um, I'm not a big anal fan. I've done it a few times, you know, but I'm, you know, I like a little bit of bondage and, you know, I'm pretty, pretty open. Um, so. What do you mean a little bit of bondage? I'm kind of interested in that myself. What do you do? I'm just like getting tied up or blindfolded and I have like, you know, like a riding crop and like different little whips and stuff like that. So you're not opposed to me tying you up? Not at all. Hmm. Now, with the props, are you it. hitting the guy or the guy hitting you? No. I like I I like to be hit. Just a little oh. bit. Yeah, a little pain for pleasure, a little tease. Yeah, I've seen that in some porn movies, like the riding crop. I, I see the guy hitting the girl on the ass, but some guys take the riding crop and, and smack the girl's vagina. And her titty. <laughs> did, did you ever have that yeah, happen? I've, I have. Yeah. It, it works sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, lightly. Fun. Yeah. A little bit of build up. Ha, yeah. Some, well, I'm sometimes hard, you know, depends on the mood. I mean, sometimes, yeah, I like a little, you know, or like smack the ass really hard and then they give it a good squeeze, you know, something like that. That used to be so. that, that little period of time where I was single. Um, I tried that with a couple of women at the time, but I told you, I, I didn't know what to do once I had them tied up. You didn't have a riding crop with you? No. What I did was, um, my thing was, because I saw it in a porn movie, I would leave the room. And I read it in a porn book once. They said, that drives a woman crazy because they're, like, tied up and you're gone. And, like, so, supposedly their, anticip- their vaginas get very, very wet because they're, this, of course, was a porn and uh, because they're like, oh, they're frustrated. They can't touch their own vagina because they're so hot for you. So I would leave the room. Yeah, my ex did that one time where he tied me up and then left the room. And I was like, hey, wait a second. And then he came back. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I left the room. And then I'm sitting there going, all I want to do is bang. Why? Oh, this is a, this, why am I? Now I'm getting angry that I'm not tied up and I'm outside of the room. Like, like I'm actually, I, I go, this is the dumbest thing. So I went back in the room and. Two seconds later, I untied her, and we and we did it. Didn't you know it was? It wasn't all that. And then it was also like you know what I like um, someone like wrapping their arms around me and stuff. And now the person's tied up; they can't even they can't do anything to you. I need. So I like both. I don't need it. I don't need it every time because you know I love feeling a man's skin or a woman's skin, and you know you know looking into their eyes. Or you know I'm. I love the intimacy aspect of it as well, but you know, there's definitely times where it's just fun to get freaky. And so, then yeah, it turns out I, I'm bad at tying knots. Everybody got out. 
Oh, really? You came back and they were already untied? <laughs> well, like I never had any rope or anything, so I would use my necktie. And uh, two seconds later, everyone's out of it. And I'm like, oh, I'm a disaster. Yeah, it was pretty lame. But like I even did one where um, the woman was like her arms were, you know, out, you know, stretched out and her legs were spread wide open so I could do whatever I want. And then I realized I don't really want to do anything uh, besides put my penis inside. So it wasn't like there was something to do after I had everybody tied up, you know. Well, you can you can penetrate them when they're tied up. Yeah, I mean, I could, but then I realized I like to be, you know, hugged and, like, it was yeah, kind of weird. I get it, for sure. I like both, yeah. Like, I, no. I don't need to be tied up every time. That's you mean you've been so. tied up spread eagle, and the guy, what does the guy do to you? Uh, you know, he'll, uh, you know, smack my ass with, you know, the the writing with different things and then he'll also sometimes use like a vibrator and you know get me off that way and then he'll you know put my ass up and then fuck me from behind you know stuff like that Mm. so seems like a lot of work (laughs) all right more work for them and fun for me so (laughs) you sound like a party i'll tell you mutual benefit so yeah you sound like a real party, I'll tell you that, Amanda. But do you, do you, this do is you, the uh, girl who yeah. called us to ask if she should carry a condom. She should carry a giant rubber suit. <laughs> well, they've always had them. Every guy that I've ever been with has always had them. But I feel like it, you know, maybe... No, it's I a good should, idea. It's a good idea. You know, it wouldn't Absolutely. hurt, like you said, and just ask them first. And then if they don't, be like, oh, look what I have here. So, Do you ever pee on guys? No. Yeah, I'm not. Nor into do that. I want to be peed on. Not into right. that at all. I'm with you. No, no. Sal loves you. that. Too much for me. Sal slipped me a note and goes, "Ask her if she likes to be peed on." I wondered if he did that. Yeah, yeah, I did. Sal's that for fucking me. hilarious, though. I am very much a Sal fan. Um, yeah, I love all of his stories. He's a fucking riot. So, all. Are you into threesomes at all? Yes. Not as com- not as often as I would like, you know, but, uh, yes, I've definitely Jeez. gone that direction multiple times, for sure. So, Jeez. Yeah. So, like, you Where get on the way. time to work. <laughs> do you ever, like, are you ever no, with a couple? I like, work it's really re- hard. <laughs> are you the type that ever goes to a bar and, you know, you're dressed, like, almost in nothing, and then you meet a couple and you go home with them? No, it's usually couples that I already know. Um, yeah, but I'm. How do you get that going? That happening. Um, just knowing the right people, going to certain events, meeting people. You know, there's like a big polyamorous community out here in California. So you know. Have you ever like hung out with a couple and you say to the woman, like you go in the kitchen and you conspire with the woman, hey, we should get it on in front of this guy and. And then you come out and start putting on a show for him? Uh, yeah, I've done that before. How's that go down? Um, just the girl and I will talk about it. And, you know, it's kind of already like the energy is already there that, you know, I, it's going to happen. Basically, everyone's kind of feeling, you know, a little sexy. And so usually the girl and I will start off and then the 
guy will join in. Hmm. Well, she's a polyamorous person. And so she's well, it's interesting surrounded I, by, yeah. Yeah, I'm surrounded by it, but I don't really, like, a lot of people in poly have, like, one primary partner and then a bunch of, like, sub-partners. And I've, at the moment, I don't have one primary partner. This so girl I, knows about everything. You said polyamorous, and I was kind of, like, bummed because, it, you know, you were making it scientific. And she was like, yeah, the poly community is like, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> The poly community. I mean, who would even knew there was a community? Yeah, there's poly. a community. It's like, are you yeah, kidding it's, me? It's funny. This guy I used to date. He's super into it, and he like gave me a whole book on polyamory, which I haven't had time to read. But yeah, fuck reading. You're too busy banging. <laughs> You're living it. She's not reading. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to read up on it. Hey, you don't need to read up on it. <laughs> Well, you must be super odd. I mean, uh, you look like Jennifer Aniston. You got those big 34 C's. What's your waist size? Um, I'm like a 29, 30. So trying to get a little more. Yeah, you got a little. I have strong. What do you weigh? Um, I'm like 118. And you're 34, 30 waist? No, I'm like a 2930 waist, 34C. 3430? Mm. And then what's, what are those hips doing? I'm like a 2930 uh, hips, like waist. So, yeah. You're built like a box. No, that's like called a- an H, Howard. She's yeah, H. like a H. H. <laughs> What's that mean? Is that good or bad? It sounds bad. It's just know. different body types. Some people are the hourglass. Some people are an H. Yeah. I'm like a Z. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's looking at me. <laughs> All right. Uh, just email me a picture of yourself and holding a newspaper, today's date, and uh, an condom. <laughs> like you're All right, Amanda. kidnapped. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like you're and it's just. Kind of funny. My um, my old uncle used to be a condom salesman in Rensselaer, New York, and would go like door to door selling nice. condoms at like different drugstores. So yes, it's in my genes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of but things have been in your genes. Been... <laughs> <laughs> Touché, All right, Howard. <laughs> okay, Amanda. Uh, good luck. Right. Carry a condom. Definitely carry one or two. All right. Everyone should carry All a right. condom. Yeah, you sound very hot. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. You guys have a beautiful day. Take care. You too. You too, baby. I'm down. Put some ice on that thing. (laughs) She wants another cock. Good luck with that constant fucking. Well, I was going to tell you about this Long Island medium and what she's up to, but I'm... I don't know, man. It's really nasty stuff. She did a special. I'll do this at some point, but she did a special... Where she gets in touch with um, families who had people die on the on the on nine eleven, she got in touch with people who want to be in touch with people who died on nine eleven, yeah, like relatives. That seems particularly horrible. I see people willing to be really horrible a lot, and I couldn't believe when I I happened to pass that as I was you know just going around the dial. No. A while back, it was nine eleven actually, and somebody thought this would be a great thing to show on nine eleven. People being 
it put in touch with supposedly the people they lost on 9-11. Well, it was on TLC, which I'm a big fan of because I watch Thousand Pound Sisters and um, and the uh, all the uh, obesity shows. But um, does TLC, like, are they putting that on to say, hey, look at the nonsense that's going on out there? Or are they putting it on because no, they think it's a nice thing? they're putting it on as a remembrance of 9-11. Yeah, so the concept was... And I, I, I'll get into this because I pulled some clips. Long Island Medium goes to the actual 9-11 attack site, you know, goes and, and then contacts 9-11 ghosts who evidently, yeah. if you go down to the actual Twin Towers, the ghosts, I guess, are all hanging out there. Like they don't they don't even want to leave that area, I guess. You know, uh, they, hello, are you really serious? <laughs> yeah, well, why, why, why else would staying there? Yeah, well, why else does she have to go down to nine eleven, like to the Twin Towers? Like, can't you contact them from your living room? Like, wh- like, why are they hanging out at the Twin Towers? Because, like I said, she's a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the special is called Long Island Medium in memory of nine eleven, and even the title pisses me off. So, of course, I want to talk to you about it at length. But right now, I'm going to take a break. And then Dave Grohl has really written an excellent book. It's very well done. It's full of great rock and roll stories in his life. And it's just written very, uh, all I know is I read it in about two days. So it must be good. Well, you normally, uh, are a, a historian, shall I say. You love to know the history of rock and roll and everything that went into creating a great artist. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I love books like this. But also Dave wrote a whole thing. This is, I have to talk to him about it. He wrote a whole thing about ghosts. Really? And UFOs, yeah, and it was weird. I read on the Kindle while Beth's sleeping, so it was dark in the room. And I don't believe in ghosts or anything, but I did. <laughs> I got scared. <laughs> the book scared you? Yeah, and I don't believe any of that shit. I don't even believe Dave does. But I mean, Dave obviously does because he writes about it pretty seriously. But he'll tell this story, I'm sure. Anyway, let me take a break. And uh, you know what a fan I am of Dave Grohl. Not just yeah. from Nirvana, but Foo Fighters. I mean, to be in two great bands, it's almost impossible. So I hold him in high regard. In fact, he's going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's already in as the Nirvana, as a drummer, but he's uh, yeah. going in as Foo Fighters this year. So, all right. Let me take a break. We'll get back to uh, that. Oh. tell you the story about Warren Haynes and my mother? No. Your mother's very cool, and we're going to talk about her in a minute, but tell me the story. Okay. 
So, I mean, it's a September By the way, we 11th. should mention that Warren Haynes used to play with the Allman Brothers, but okay. That's yeah. right. Okay, right. so on September 11th, uh, my mother, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., and so my house is maybe about eight miles from the Pentagon. I was in Los Angeles when it happened, and so uh, I called my mother to check in to make sure she was okay, because the Pentagon, which also got hit, was close to my house. And she said, oh, there's sirens everywhere and the streets are closed down. And I said, you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there. She goes, I don't know where to go. I said, let me figure it out. So I called my management and I said, hey, are there any tour buses around? I want to get my mom out to Los Angeles. I got to get her out of Virginia. And they said, let's check. And about three hours later, they called. They said, okay, there's a tour bus and they can pick her up in three hours. But there's a catch. She has to share it with Warren Haynes from Government Mule and the Allman Brothers. (laughs) And I said, okay. And I knew him. He's the sweetest. This man in the world, he's amazing. So I called my mom and I'm like, Mom, I got you a bus, start packing. But listen, you got to share it with this dude from the Almond Brothers. And I, <laughs> I said, I promise, he's the sweetest guy in the world. And so yeah. he and my mother jumped on a tour bus, came all the way across country to California, and the two of them made best friends. Isn't that great? Wow. What a generous, uh, uh, what a crazy, you, your book is filled with crazy stories. <laughs> I love the book, number one. Hey, by the way, I just have to share this with you because only, you know, who am I going to share this with? Tomorrow, for the first time in my life, this is what I've been waiting for. I'm going to interview Mick Jagger. Whoa, Howard, that's, that's fucking amazing. Huge. I'm so uh, fucking delighted. Huge. huge. Congratulations. I can't believe yeah. that's never happened. What the heck? You know what it is? He does very few interviews, and uh, it came about a whole variety of reasons, but... Like uh, for like, I have to move the show and everything, but I don't care. Like the, you know, it's Mick Jagger. I mean, think you about gotta do um, it. What I mean, you I know you ask him. What oh, do you say? I, this is the problem. I only have him for like forty minutes or something. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe he'll stay longer. We'll see. But like, I already have two pages of questions, and like, even just about him as a front man, you know, that whole decision whether you dance or not, or if you're the type of guy who, you know, like yeah. even that physical decision. And and he still does it at his age. Just the, the, he, and as a songwriter, the whole process with him and Keith, what the fuck is that? Unbelievable! You, it's unbelievable. How can, how can you write that many hit songs? I mean, it's, it's incredible. Insane. You know, the, since the last time I saw you, I can't remember when I did it, but I woke up one morning and I looked at my phone, and there was a text from an English number, and it said, "Hey, Dave, it's Mick." I have something I want to work on with you. You can either email me or text me back. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, there's no, this can't be, there's no way it's Mick Jagger. This, 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 I, I don't, I mean, I kind, I've met him, but there's no way. And yeah. so I just text back and said, yeah, I'll call you in half an hour. And I call the number. He's like, all right, Dave, how you doing? Right? I'm like, oh my God, it's Mick Jagger. And I said, <laughs> I said, what have you been doing for the last year? And I guess before the pandemic hit, they were preparing to go out and do some shows. And he said, he goes, well, you know, he, he, he got a dance studio to warm up for the tour. And then the tour got shut down. And he said, but I kept the studio. I just kept dancing, man. And so like that whole time everyone was locked down, he's still in a dance studio getting his moves together for a year to come out and do the shows they're doing now. He's incredible. Unbelievable. Well, somebody said they once clocked in a concert because he does stadiums. That in any given concert, he he's it's a, it would be um, analogous to running twelve miles. That he's literally <laughs> running twelve miles. And the, you know, he's no kid. He's unbelievable, How, dude. Unbelievable. You worked with him, so you ended up I working did. with him. Well, yes, and we recorded this song. He said he had written a song about COVID. 
And he's like, it's a bit punk rock, so I wondered if you play the drums. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll play the drums on it. And then he's like, just put anything you want on it. So I put bass on it, I put guitar on it. We sent it back and forth. And the coolest thing was uh, when we finished recording the song and he sent back the first mix, man, it was so raw and it was so noisy. And it was so, I was like, I can't believe this guy wants to release. This is like, it sounds like Radiohead in a blender. Like it was insane. It just sounded right. totally insane. But then what, what I realized was it's those guys, it's the innovators, like the originators. They're the ones, more than the young ones, they're the ones that are willing to take the risks. Like right. these, someone like Mick or Paul or Roger Waters, like those are the guys, they really take the risks. They make us look so like straight you know it's, it's those guys that invented rock and roll that actually they take the risks yeah because like when you worked with paul mccartney and you know it was essentially nirvana without kurt but paul mccartney was the 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 singer on that song that song was way loud and distorted and fucking uh, like it's almost like back in your scream days or something it's like oh yeah motherfucker it, it was crazy and i was like paul singing that Oh, yeah. But when he walked in, the greatest thing was, you know, everybody, he brought the bass. Like, there was the bass, that cool Hoffer. <laughs> it was on a stand in there. And he walks in with this guitar made out of a cigar box. I mean, it, I know. it was a stick. And he's like, no, I'm going to play this. I'm like, yeah, of course you will. You're Paul McCartney. It was amazing. Yeah, here's you and uh, Mick. Easy Sleazy is the name of the song. Can't believe yeah. you. Man, you've worked with everybody. But... That rock. You guys are never in the same room when you're doing this? You guys just sent it back and forth? No, I think he was in Italy at the time. And, and that was the thing I said. I said, yeah, send it to me. It, 30 seconds later, I had an email with that demo. I mean, he like when he's on it, he's on it, man. And then it was just when, a few days before we were done. Why wouldn't he bring that to the Stones? Like, what, what do you think was going on? He just needed a break from them or something? I don't really know. I don't know. Mm. I didn't and ask. You didn't ask. I mean, when you're in the Rolling Stones <laughs> world, you don't ask too many questions. You just do it. <laughs> you do it. Wow. What is fucking yeah. amazing. By the way, the reason Dave's here, he's not here for his health. He's written a book over the pandemic. And again, I will recommend it to you. I, I've told the audience about the book. I read it over the summer. And when I say I read it over the summer, I, I read it in like two days because it's everything I want in a rock book. Uh, no bullshit. I, I was going to call you even and tell you because... It's the kind of book where I want to know great stories about your life as a musician. And you hit all the, you know, you hit all the, the, the important stories. The book is called The Storyteller. But there was a question I had from this one story because it was probably the story where I lit up the most because it's my fantasy about rock and roll. And you were very honest about this. So when you were a kid, there was some girl in your school. And you were not like a popular guy in school. This girl, Sandy, right? And when you started telling this story in the book, I was like, this is what fucking lights my fire. Because this is what I think inspires most rock and roll artists. So Sandy's hot. You don't stand a chance with her. You have the balls to go over to Sandy and ask her out and say, will you be my girlfriend? What grade were you in? Seventh, ninth? What it were was you? seventh grade. Seventh, seventh grade. grade. Okay. Sandy's hot. You want her. I, I would, first of all, in this story, never have the balls to go over to Sandy and ask her to be my girlfriend. But you did. And you weren't confident. 
You weren't George Clooney. You know, you didn't have the whole guitar hero thing going or drum hero or whatever. And Sandy goes, yeah, I'll be your girlfriend. And for one glorious week, which is longer than you even think it's going to be, for one glorious week, this girl Sandy is your girlfriend. And you're on cloud nine. You're like a fucking stud. This is your seventh grade girlfriend. But in seventh grade, she turns to you after one week and says, hey, I want to play the field. Fuck you, Dave. You know, you're not that great a boyfriend. I, did you ever even get to kiss her or anything? I mean, did, did I, he go? I don't, I don't remember. I think it was like holding hands in the hallway and then yeah. we talk on the phone all night. We were like 13 years old, you know? Yeah. Like I had a girlfriend at 13. I remember I was reading a book called On Your Wedding Night because I was trying to figure out if I should touch her boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and I was reading my parents had On Your Wedding Night. But so you see, you're a kid and you're innocent and we didn't have porn back then even to, to learn anything. And then you describe she breaks up with you and it was a devastating breakup. Like it, it, it rocked you. And you said, it's then that the rock star fantasy hit you. You said, the guitar is my love. The drums are my love. I am going to become a rock star. And one day this fucking Sandy, one day this Sandy is going to come to my show and I'm going to be playing a stadium and she's going to eat her fucking heart out. <laughs> and that's the most honest story of all, because that that's what drove me to be on the radio. I didn't have musical talent, but... I, I wanted the girls who had rejected me to suffer, to see <laughs> that I had become something that desirable. You see, and so this is the part of the story I don't understand. And this is, I'm getting to a question. <laughs> I'm loving your version of this. This is so yeah. good. Oh, I, oh, keep going. Keep going. I mean, I love this story so much in your book that this was like, I was like, finally, Dave's telling the truth. He got into <laughs> rock and roll. He went to get laid. This is the, this is the most honest thing and sure enough you study the drums you know you will go into your whole story but years later a friend contacts you you're about to play stadium right what stadium it was it was a big show it was, it was an arena in washington dc it was my hometown show in dc <laughs> your friend calls and goes hey by the way do you mind if do you remember sandy from and you're like yeah she wants to come to the show and you even say in the book, like, you know, you had to prepare for this. Sandy was coming to the show. This is it. This is why you got into rock and roll. This fucking Sandy. And Sandy shows up, Dave. And what happens? You, she's backstage with you. And she looks good, right? She's hot. Absolutely. And, 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 and you're talking with her. And she's about to worship you. She's going to be in the audience watching you up on this stage as a guitar god. And the head of the Foo Fighters. I, I, I mean, what a fantasy. What It's coming true. What, did you wear something special that night? Did you prepare? Did you shower uh, extra long? I mean, what, what was the preparation like? First of all, I loved your version of the story. It's so good. Yes. Basically... I Okay, when 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 we were young back then, thirteen years old. I, this was I mean, she was she was my first love, you know. So this is the first time my heart ever felt that feeling, where you see this beautiful girl and you just you you want her to love you and you 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 want her to be yours and you know this is the first time I ever felt this right right and um, so when she when she. Uh, accepted my offer to be the, the future Mrs. Grohl. She, uh, 
you know, I was, I was overjoyed. I mean, this was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. Now I'd only been playing guitar for maybe like about two years or three years. So I barely even knew how to do that. Right. Right. But I had right. posters on my walls and I like had Zeppelin posters and kiss posters. And to me, that was like, you know, that, that's Valhalla. You know, these guys, they're, they're more than human. These are like gods and I want to yes. be one of them, you know, right. Of yes. course. And so when she told me that she didn't want to be the future Mrs. Scroll, I was so, heartbroken that I turned to the guitar. And so this was the beginning of that connection with my heart and music. Now I'd been listening to other people's songs about heartbreak and I'd been listening to other people's music, you know, that, that soothes their pain. But then now I'm heartbroken. I'm like 13 years. I was such a skinny fucking nerd. Like there was just no way I was ever going to be one of these people on the poster or anything like that. Right. But in my mind, I was like, I'm, this is it, you know? So I was so heartbroken that I sort of realized, okay, the only way I'm going to get out of this is to pick up that guitar and become a fucking rock star and write songs. So now I have a way to deal with it. Now I've got a guitar. Now I can write songs. Like that's, I turned my pain and the heartbreak in that direction. But I did have this dream. I had a dream that night where I was on stage in an arena playing a lead at the lip of the stage and the audience is going fucking nuts. And I was like, you're all fucking amazing. And I looked down and she's in the front row crying. Like right. consumed with regret that she and the crying made is, the horrible mistake. I've had the same fantasy. The crying is, oh my God. I could have been his girlfriend. Oh, if I had only stayed with him. Oh, my God. I want him so bad. And you're like, you know, no way. You know, I, I know your true colors. You didn't want me when I wasn't famous. It's just revenge. It's revenge. Boy, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the fucked up thing. So then I come back 30 years later. We, I mean, we, we went to school with each other for a few more years and blah, blah, blah. We were always friends. You know, it was fine. Yeah, but she was always dating other 20s. Yeah, but she was always dating other guys. She's always, I know, but like, yeah, I mean, yeah. come on, Howard, we were 13. That's like okay. wanting to be on the same baseball team you were on in fifth grade. Like it just doesn't <laughs> right. work. And so, so then like 25 years later or something, we're playing this hometown gig and it's a sold out show and it's like a high school reunion. Everybody I know is coming to this show. It was our first sold out show in DC arena, hometown thing. It's like a homecoming. I show up. My friend Richie says he's bringing Sandy. Sandy comes. And uh, I see what's she wearing. You didn't tell me what is she wearing. I can't remember. I mean that. I remember. I, I don't really make remember. it up. It wasn't Mini like shorts, no pins, and a cashmere sweater <laughs> like in like, <laughs> it's 1981 or whatever. But uh, but anyway, so we get to so we start talking. You know, she's got married. She has kids. I'm married. We have kids. We start talking about life. All of our old friends. And then my tour manager says, "Hey, uh, you got to write a set list. You're on in 20 minutes." I'm like, "All right." Oh, that's I'll see that's the, the greatest. You couldn't have planned that better. While Sandy's standing there, yeah, yeah, hey, Dave, you got something horrible you have to do. You have to plan your set list. I would plan the set list in front of her, like I would show her my rock star powers. Uh, uh, was Sandy standing there while you prepared? Let's see, which no. song am I doing again? I, what? I don't remember. Well, I mean, we were sitting next to each other, but the thing that I do remember is that night I'm on stage doing a solo at the lip of the stage, audience going, you're fucking amazing. And I look down and Sandy's right there, just like she was in my dream when I was 13 years old. Except she wasn't looking at me crying in regret. She was looking at me laughing, saying, God, you're such a fucking asshole. <laughs> and she gave you the finger. I mean, listen, we, we had, wait a second. I had, I had told her this story before, so she knew it. So as I was, as I was sitting there playing, she was looking at me like, don't, don't even, don't even do it. Don't even try. Like, fuck you.
I'm not going to cry over you. <laughs> exactly. Oh, shit. She ruined everything. And then, we, and then that- we've remained friends over the years. I mean, I haven't seen her in a long time. But, like, you know, growing up in a small town like that in Springfield, it was like everybody knew each other and everyone grew up with each other. And we've all kept in touch over the years. And um, Wouldn't it have been great, yeah. Dave? Dave, wouldn't it have been great if she came back saying, listen, Dave, I actually was in love with you in high school. <laughs> I got, I, I, you know, like she threw herself at you and started making out with you and gave herself to you. I would don't really know perfect. if that would have been the best idea. I mean, I've been I've been at a lot of crossroads in my life, but I think that one I've, I finally cleared it and made my way through. In my mind, she still wants you. I believe I'm read, I'm actually reading a book that was written by Sandy right now, and Sandy uh. says I <laughs> oh, should have been go. with Dad. I blew it, yeah, right. you know, because one of the first girls I was ever in love with, blah 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 blah. She has said to me, I've I've seen her since, and she goes, shit. I should have fucking been with you because we would have been divorced and I would have had half your money. And I go, yeah, you, 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 you blew it. You <laughs> what an idiot. What an idiot. You could have what had all an that. Idiot. God. Explain. There's, there's a couple of things. I. But anyway, I love that story in the book. Explain something to me. Uh, this is a minor point, but this is a thought I had when, when, and I didn't understand it. You say when you started to play drums, you know, you didn't have a drum kit and stuff. You would play on pillows and things like that. And then you said, um, I do this thing. And it actually, I used to have to go to the dentist. It would ruin my teeth. I would play the drums on my teeth. And, and you said the only other guy you ever saw play the drums on his teeth or with his teeth was Kurt Cobain. That's how he taught himself drums. I didn't really, in other words, I've tried to imagine what you're talking about. Is it this? Yes, but it sounds like this. Okay, listen, it's like... It's like that. Wow. And and that's how you taught yourself. Like, that was one of the things you did. And you say even when you were drumming for Nirvana back then, you would kind of, uh, you saw, you saw, um, uh, you saw Kurt moving his teeth to keep pace or to keep a beat going, right? Yeah. Uh, like, if you watch the unplugged uh, footage that, that we shot, um, no. you can kind of see his jaw moving back and forth. And he would sort of use that as a metronome to, like, keep time whenever he was like playing something and you know what i've learned after like sharing that with the people is that a lot of musicians do the same thing and i think what happens is um when you discover music and you start getting really into it uh it's it's like an obsession and so whether you're like just playing drums on a table or you're humming something in your head or you're playing drums with your teeth you're basically just you know, you're kind of utilizing any resource to do it. And when you're a kid and you don't have a drum set, you know, and, and, and you're playing, learning on pillows, I would walk to school with my backpack and just play songs with my teeth until I got to my locker. And then I'd throw my backpack in the locker and the day would start. But yes, I went to the dentist and he was like, do you chew a lot of ice? I was like 10, 11. Yeah. I'm like, no, why? He goes, yeah, he was like, your mouth, your teeth have an unusual amount of deterioration. And I was like, oh, wait, I can play drums with my teeth. And I made him listen to me do it. And he was like, get the fuck out of my office right now. Like, that's the, <laughs> that is the get stupidest out. thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. Oh, my God. That's so great. No wonder uh, Sandy dumped you. You were you you, you had rotten teeth. from. Uh, I know. From listen, by the that. time I'm like 60 years old, I'm going to look like a meth head. They'll be gone. <laughs> Your teeth. That is an amazing thing. And it's amazing that Kurt did that, too. I mean, I, I just... Yeah. I mean, the odds of it and, 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 you know, not being a musician, I found that fascinating, quite frankly. You know, the, um, 
Um, the, the theme also in the book that I have a hard time still believing is you've had one drum lesson or one guitar lesson in your life. And other than that, completely self-taught. And, yeah. um, and I, and I was watching an interview with you and, uh, Pharrell mm-hmm. and Pharrell says, you're a great drummer and you, you know, you're a pretty humble guy, but you go, oh, stop saying I'm a great drummer. I'm not a great drummer. You insist that you're not a great drummer. You know, I disagree. And you prove to Pharrell that you're not a great drummer, that you were doing disco beats and all this other stuff. But, um, I don't know. I think you are a great drummer. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a proven fact just by the amount of bands you've been in and the, and, and the Foo, first Foo Fighter albums where you played the drums and, and, you know, why, why this insistence that you're not a great drummer? And also watching Kurt, I believe Kurt was a great guitar player. Yeah, he um, was. He well, was. you know, this goes back to the, okay, remember I sent you an email of a forward that I wrote for a book about John Bonham. And in that email, I, I was, uh, because you were doing that Neil Peart, John Bonham thing all the time. And people were asking right. me like, well, what do you think? Howard's trying to figure out which one's the better drummer. So I had written this forward to this John Bonham book. It's called Beast. And the, the, in the forward, I talk about feel and how feel is something that's totally indefinable. It's something that you, I mean, you, you can't, you, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense to over intellectualize over intellectualize it because it's just it's some it just is and it's determined by your personality your inner tempo it's like a it's like a blueprint or a finger a fingerprint you know it's it's determined by the universe no two drummers play the same right so you know it depends on what you consider a great drummer like the drummers that i consider great are the ones that you can listen to 20 seconds of that person playing the drums and you know exactly who it is. You know it's Ringo. You know it's Bonham. You know it's Neil Peart. You know it's Stuart Copeland. You know it's Keith Moon. And <clears throat> that to me is something to aspire to. Not the technicality of drumming. Not how you do something, but why you play it that way. And so, you know, when I think about my drumming, I mean, most drummers, I swear to God, most drummers hear my drumming and they're just like, God, he sucks. God, he's so basic. God, he's like, a... and but to me, the most important thing is my feel and my signature thing. So do I consider myself a drummer like Neil Peart? Absolutely not. Do I consider myself more of the like Charlie Watts or Ringo side of things, the feel? Absolutely. That's just kind of what I do. Um, but yeah, I mean, and you know, I'm never going to come out and say like, I'm the greatest fucking drummer of all time. Like you can't do that. But, and I remember you saying that painters have the same signature feel that, that you could, you can, you can, uh, name a painter by the specific lines that they do. That becomes their signature feel. It's the same thing. It really is. Yeah. I could look at a painting and know who did it. I mean, certain artists because they have a signature kind of uh, calligraphy that they do. Do, do you, but but to, when you built that old altar, this is another part of your book. But when you built that like altar to John Bonham and played to the, you know, you were praying to the gods of drums that you could have a career and all this other stuff. You um you talk about Bonham's symbol, those three circles, you know, that they put together. But you also mentioned six oh six. I didn't know what six oh six was when you built that altar to say, you know, basically I want to be a drummer in life. What was six oh six standing for? Okay, it, this is one of the things that. As I was writing the book, I had a few realizations where I didn't intend to write them. I just found them. So, like, I was sitting there thinking about the time I ran away from my dad's apartment, 
right? It was like, that was the breaking point between my father and I, where we had this really strained relationship. My parents divorced when I was six or seven. He was, you know, my mother was a liberal public school teacher. Very cool. My dad was a conservative Republican speechwriter on Capitol Hill. He was like Bob Dole. Like, and he winds up with me as his kid. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but so there was one night where he gave me this big, long, what are you going to do with your life lecture? And I finally had it. And I said, fuck it. He went to sleep and I wrote a runaway note and it's a, it's a long story. But anyway, I, I put it on the table and as I was like closing the door quietly not to wake him, I looked at the number of his apartment and it was apartment 606. Oh. And, the, and, and I didn't really even put that together until I started writing the book because then it became a number that I saw everywhere. I would see it on a license plate. I'd see it at 606 PM. I'd, I'd look, I just started seeing it all over the place. Like someone who has OCD, you know, like I just started seeing it all over the place. But I think it sort of represented something to me that like, like the birth of my independence, you know, or me like deciding like, uh -uh, I'm going to become my own person. I'm going to do it right now. And so when I, when I was maybe 17, I mean, I was taking mushrooms and acid. I was out of my mind when I was like 17 or 18 years old. Right, and right. I had this, I had this idea that in order for me to somehow find that signature feel, that thing that's defined by the universe, that I had to ask the universe for it. So I built this fucking altar. Like a Satan worshiping weirdo, I build this thing in my carport. There's like candles and I made all these like little symbols and like side 606 and the three circles logo. And I, I literally like sat down and meditated and begged the universe to become a fucking rock star. <laughs> wow. I find that whole part. I, I could have even in the book taken more of you and your father because I'm mixed about your father after reading the book. On the mm -hmm. one hand, most dads. You see, it's such a strange thing that your mom is a school teacher, but when you tell her you're dropping out of school to join Scream, I'm like, boy, what an unusual mother and how supportive. But your dad, on the other hand, I kind of get him. He's saying to you, son, you're going to be a loser in life. You need to finish high school and you need to start thinking realistically about the future. Yeah. And, you know, and you kind of hint that your dad had an alcohol problem. You know, you say he had an alcohol problem, but in a way I get that your dad was maybe just scared for you, that he didn't understand you and, but he didn't seem mean. No. But then all of a sudden he disowned you. You said, I'm dropping out of high school and he goes, well, fuck you. I don't want to see you anymore. Good luck to you. He's a confusing guy to me. Well, I mean, it's, you're right. I could write an entire book about this relationship because it, it was, we were very conflicted. You know, I mean, my father was a classically trained flautist. He was a musician with perfect pitch and he had the ear and he had the musical mind. I'm sure that he had his own weird sense of synesthesia where he could see music, like stuff like that. Um, I, I actually wrote, I wrote an article, an article about this for the Atlantic. And it basically says like, how far does the apple fall from the tree? In my case, it rolled all the way down the fucking hill, you know? And right. but I talk about our, our similarities and I'm, I'm who I am because of this person. And so, yeah, we had a really strained relationship until I was maybe in my twenties and then we became friends, you know? And then we get like, as a, as I became a man, we like, we sort of saw each other on this new level and it was great. You know, one of the reasons why my mother, 
was okay with me dropping out of high school is because she was a high school English teacher. And so she knew that no child, no two children learn the same. And sometimes it's not the kid that fails the school, it's the school that fails the kid. And she didn't think I was a complete idiot. You know, she just knew that I wasn't going to make it under the fluorescent lights of this, of this public school thing. So when I said, I got to go, I got to go play music, she said, you better be good. That's it. And my father, on the other hand, was like, <clears throat> good luck. I mean, he took, he, I think he was saving money for me to go to college. And then the next right. time I saw him, he had this like forest green Plymouth Volare. Like he got like a brand new car. And I was, well, I was just your dad said, good luck and stay off the drugs. And that was it. And you didn't talk to him for a little. He was basically saying, you're no longer my son. And, you know, these two people are so different, your mother and father. You got to ask yourself, why the hell did they what was the attraction, and why did they even get married? You know, you know, I'll tell you, it's it's funny. They met in theater. They were both in this sort of regional theater group in northeastern Ohio. And they both were, like, very romantic, artistic, musical uh, people that loved art, culture, and food. And, I mean, this is, like, rural Ohio. This is not, like, right. New York City. And I think my mother thought my father was going to become, like, a Broadway actor. And they were going to move to New York and have this, like, amazing city experience. And then he joined the fucking army and they moved to Germany or whatever. But, I mean, the thing is, is that my father was so fucking smart. And such a good fucking writer and such a good storyteller and 